So, we have learned. We do not put the mic box in the back of the room ever again. Those of you who keep track of such things will know that, of course, Cindy destroyed me in the NCAA. <laughs> Absolutely destroyed me. But! Utah is alive. We are alive. It's not on. Okay. Is it on? No. Is it on? Yes. Okay. Utah is alive. That, of course, makes up for my beating. It just shows you what great coaching will do. You do not have to have talent if you're brilliant. I'm happy to see him. I root for that guy. That's a little loud. Okay. What do we do? Turn it down. How about that? Does it even work, man? Okay. We don't know how it works. That's the first time I've ever seen it. Okay, I'm ambitious today, because finally, yay, we have gotten out of Adam and Eve. Well, we haven't. Yes, we have. Well, you never do. I'm ambitious, though, to show you I have two pads today. I'll put that down there. I'm a multi-pad guy. That means I have 40 pages, and I really do have 40 pages. Now, the reason I do is because... I don't really know what direction I'm going. Uh, Al has a great comment about a pastor, old southern pastor, says, I don't take notes up because I don't want the devil to know what I'm going to say. And that's kind of where I'm at today. This is such a complex subject. I could go a hundred different directions. This is Cain and Abel. And Cain and Abel is probably the most misunderstood story in Scripture. What is it really about? How does it fit into Genesis where is it headed? Is it fair? Most people don't believe it's fair. They read Cain and Abel and say, God is not fair. How could he do that to poor old Cain? He's a good guy. He brought a nice offering. What's the problem? What is going on in this story? And why does Cain kill Abel? What doesn't make sense. There's no motive there. Very misunderstood. And I'll put this right on the board right now. Uh, verse 4-7 of Genesis. There is not a consensus of what that scripture means by any theologian, any group of theologians. In fact, one of the most brilliant says that that is the most unresolved scripture in the Bible. Now, I'm sure you read that a bunch of times. We do, by the way, provide you with these scriptures in the bulletin, so you do not have to bring your Bible. It is, I'm kidding, you should, because this is New King James. There's a reason I use New King James. One is that Bonnie bought it for me. No, but two is because that it is most like what I wanted to say from the Hebrew in the Old Testament. Now, in the New Testament, New King James breaks down a little bit, but in the Old Testament, that was written in Hebrew, and New King James has a tendency to be the most correct in those places where I want it to be. This is not one of them. This translation that you're going to get here from New King James, I believe, is unsatisfactory. We'll beat our way through that as we go. Okay, I would love to leave Adam and Eve, but I'm scared to tell you why. I have not done it justice. Those of you who have come here and listened to me go on Adam and Eve, I have not finished it. I haven't even got started. I barely scratched the surface on it. See, I left out wonderful things. I left out, for example, Christ in the garden of Gethsemane, didn't I? I said Gethsemane last week. I talked about his agony on the decision he had to make, but I left out the wonderful word garden, didn't I? Which tells you that he isn't, it's not the ballpark of Gethsemane, is it? It's not the restaurant of Gethsemane. It's not the temple of Gethsemane. When Christ is anticipating a separation from God, where is he? He's in a garden. That is not a coincidence. That's more of the typology of Adam and Eve. I didn't get in there. And if you keep the bulletins, which you're supposed to, I did a lousy job on Philippians and Exodus. 
I really did. I didn't have time. I ran out of time. And I'd love to go back and just do Philippians and Exodus because that is a redemptive week. And I love redemptive weeks. Some of you have sat through some of my redemptive week uh, lectures and you've gone, oh, no, no. But see, redemptive weeks are very important. It talks about the slave is a slave for six years. Well, that's critically important. Christ is here for 6,000 years. God's redemptive week plan, he has this correlation between a thousand years and a day, and a year and a thousand years. You have to understand that stuff. And I did a little, real quick job over it. But the essence, Adam and Eve, is this too high? Drop that down for here. Essence of Adam and Eve, after creation, the essence is we have a discussion on God's image, and you know that I take a position that yes, there are many aspects to God's image, but first and foremost, God has the ability to choose between good and evil, and he has passed that to us. Now, he always chooses good, doesn't he? We always choose what? Evil. There's a reason for that. The reason is, is that we have inherited a sin nature from our parents who have inherited it from their parents who have inherited it all the way back to Adam and Eve. So our image has changed, but God made us in his image, and that image is about choice. One of the other themes after the creation theme, of course, is we have the naming of the animals. I'll go shorthand so I don't spend all the time writing. There's these huge pregnant pauses on the tape which annoy me. We have the naming of the animals. We have Adam being alone, and we have the created, supernaturally created bride. I know that seems like a lot for number two, but it is. Number two. Number three, another theme that enters into the Adam and Eve is the two trees. We have tree of life, tree of knowledge. We have the temptation. We're back up to God's image as we end up with this choice issue. Man must make a choice. But the most significant thing about that is not found in the Old Testament. It is found in the New Testament in 1 Timothy 2.15 where it says that Adam was not deceived. That Eve was deceived. Eve was in sin. Whoops, we broke it. Eve was in sin. Adam was not deceived. So there you have Three things right off the bat that you have to know, and the order, by the way, is important here. I'm putting these up in order as best I can. What comes next? What's another important thing? Fig leaves. After the temptation, after the sin, after the fall, comes this discussion on fig leaves in this story. <coughs> then, we have the curses. And the two seeds. The seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Two seeds. Then, coverings. God takes off the fig leaves and puts on his own covering and the wife is named. And her name is Eve. Up to this point, we just have her called woman. And then number seven, nope, that's it. We'll stop there. I don't get ahead of myself. There's your theme of Adam and Eve. That's what Adam and Eve is about. God's image, man being alone, naming the animals, supernaturally created bride out of the man. Two trees, temptation, the choice made, not deceived, made the choice without being deceived. Big leaves come into play now. Nakedness, right? Right naked down in here. This theme of nakedness springs up. And afraid. Curses. God comes into play, has the curses. And in those curses is the first mention of the Redeemer. That is called the Proto-Evangelium. And there is the Proto-Evangelium. And there is this discussion about two seeds that's primary, and then we have the covering of the animal skins, the fig leaves taken off, and Adam making this pronouncement 
that his wife's name is now Eve. And that is a significant order. So, there's Adam and Eve. Let's make room for my God. Now, Cain and Abel. Genesis 3 and Genesis 4, see there is order to the Bible. Genesis 3 comes first, and that's what it is about. Genesis 4 comes next, and it is Cain and Abel. Look over there. What is the relationship between the story of Cain and Abel and Genesis 3? There must be a relationship. They are tied together. They must be related. What's the relationship? Which part of that story are we going after here in Cain and Abel? We're going to deal with God's image again? Possible. How about the supernatural created bride and being alone and naming animals? I think we can get rid of that one, can't we? Okay. How about two trees? We got two trees in Cain and Abel? No, we don't, do we? We got anybody being deceived? Anybody being tempted? No, if we have anything, we can leave the choice. But the two trees are gone, so that's probably not there. I'm going to help you out. I'm going to get rid of God's image for you. Now we're down to three. Big leaves, curses, coverings. All three of them. See, this is... <clears throat> what Cain and Abel is about. Right? Big leaves versus two seeds covered. Wouldn't that make sense? See, we covered the first three in the story of Adam and Eve, and then we get the second three. Now we've got to go back and explain that second three. That's what the writer of Genesis is doing. He's trying to explain to you what's going on. And he uses the story of Cain and Abel to explain to you what happened here, why these three things are important, and what Cain and Abel has to say about it. Let's read out of your bulletin or your Bible. And it's probably better if you have a Bible of a different translation, because lots of things start happening here translation-wise. And isn't it marvelous that he can read it either way? Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain and said... I have acquired a man from the Lord, then she bore again this time his brother Abel. If you were here last week, I stopped right there and said that the majority position of most theologians, overwhelmingly, I could not find one that disagreed. The overwhelming position is, is that these two guys are in fact twins. Now, I did find somebody who said the text doesn't say that. I found one. I had 12 theologians last week, all 12. It was 12 old, it was like me and Cindy in the basketball pool. 12 old for twins. I finally found one. I went and found four more. It's now 15 to 1. Hey, that's pretty overwhelming. 15 to 1. Now, if you're going to say they're not twins, I'll give you 15 guys in there who have studied it a lot more than you have that are going to argue with you. Now, just if nothing else... Enter into this discussion with some trepidation if you have the non-twin view. Now, why do they say twins? Where did they get there? Now, Adam knew Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain, and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. Then she bore again, this time his brother Abel. What's missing? Yes. The reason they say that they are twins is because the, what's missing is now Adam knew Eve. If you look at your Bible and you go hunt around a little bit, you go over there and you find Cain. Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden, and Cain knew his wife. And she bore a son, Enoch. And then we get into the begats, and then you're in G Genesis uh, 25, 4.25. And Adam knew his wife again. And she bore a son. So there's a real similarity in all of that in Scripture. That being that every time there is a new child, there is this phrase, Adam knew Eve, Cain knew his wife, somebody begat somebody. That's missing here, you see. I. Then she bore again. There is no Adam knew Eve. 
again, and she bore again. It's immediate. Then she bore again. Hence, the majority position that they are twins. On that alone. Now that tells you that somebody that made that decision has an has a intricate knowledge of the Hebrew culture and language, and that is where it comes from. They have decided over time that the way the Hebrews wrote that was in such a way to demonstrate that they were twins. Is now that the twin thing in scripture a lot? I go right to Esau Jacob. What is Esau and Jacob about? What's that story about? Birthright, isn't it? Why do they care about the birthright? I do an Esau Jacob. Why do they care about this birthright? Who has it in the first place? What's that? Yeah, the oldest son should automatically get it. He gives it up. What difference does it make? God has decided at birth that the youngest son should get it. How, what makes the oldest son think that it can change? Or the parents think that it can change? God decides it goes to that boy. That's the boy it goes to. Nobody can do anything about that. Why would they fight over it? They wouldn't fight over it. It never makes sense in the way it's normally explained. And it is not that one interfered with the other. He knew perfectly what that was about. That's a story of a woman trying to save her husband and her oldest son from death, separation, destruction, condemnation from God. That is what that story is about. It has very little to do about the birthright. But what it is, really, though, the birthright is an element of it, and I have two twin brothers battling. Over a birthright. Is that what I've got here? Is Esau, the story of Esau, really another story of Cain? Are they related? Oh, I'll bet you they are. Why wouldn't they be? What comes up first and foremost? Look at what Eve says. Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. And she says, I have acquired a man from the Lord. That's what she says. When who's born? Cain. Cain's born. She says, I have acquired a man from the Lord. What's she saying? Who does she think this man is? It came from the Lord. Who is he? He is the seed of the what? Woman, isn't it? See? The first thing she thinks, you know, they got this curse. They know we're going to have this conflict. We're going to have the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. By the way, seed of the woman, not seed of the man and the woman. Seed of the woman. There's your virgin birth right off the bat. That's for free. We've done it before. Now we have the seed of the woman is battling the seed of the man, of the serpent, don't we? Who wins? The seed of the woman wins. And what does the seed of the woman do? Redeems the fallen. Who is the fallen? Adam and Eve. The first one she gets, she says, I have acquired a man, a gift from who? From the Lord. Who does she think this is? Seed of the woman, doesn't she? And then, look then. Then she bore again. This time, his brother Abel. How many does she have now? Two. How many seeds are there? Two. If the first one was the seed of the woman and that was Cain, who is this guy? Do you think she expected twins? She didn't know what to expect, did she? This is the first birth of a human being in the history of man. Could have been triplets, but isn't it interesting that she knows better than anybody, Adam and Eve know better than anybody, that we're going to have a seed of the man, seed of, I'm sorry, seed of the woman, and the seed of the serpent are going to someday come in conflict conflict, the seed of the woman will be hurt, bruised, won't she? But the seed of the serpent will be what? Killed. Try to get a head bruise sometime. See what happens to you. Head bruises are fatal. They understand that. We got two seeds. You notice she doesn't say after Cable was born, whoa, I've acquired another man. It's empty. It's blank. I'll guarantee you the first son was an exciting time for them. They thought, my goodness, this is the seed of the woman that we have expected that will solve this problem that we have. And whoops, now we have Abel. What do we do? Who is who? Which is which? Are they in fact, see, do they understand that they are? Are they in fact these two seeds that are going to battle each other? 
Are they, in fact, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent? No, they're not. Who is the seed of the woman? Jesus Christ. Who is the seed of the, of the, of the serpent? The Antichrist. At the end of the age, at the end of 6,000 years, we're going to have this conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And who will prevail? Jesus Christ will prevail. Has he been bruised by the serpent? Yes, he has. Will he destroy the seed of the serpent? Yes, he will. That gospel was given to Adam and Eve in the beginning, and now here comes two sons. And who's who? Is that even coming into play? Are they even thinking that way? I drew it out there for you to consider. Obviously, I think that they are going to think that way, don't I? This is, this is, by the way, the view that I'm giving you theologically, if I can make this thing work, is called the dispensationalist view. There are other views. I am giving you the dispensationalist view in scripture or in theology. Now, you need to understand, since you're listening to the dispensationalist view, if you like it, if you leave here today and you go, Whoa, can he get through all 80 items today in 20 more minutes? No, he can't. But if you like this view, at least you ought to come back and say, I understand now the definition of dispensationalist. Ah, how many of you are a dispensationalist? No, there is no authoritative raising hands. Yes, most of you would say, I don't know what I am, and that's okay. You don't know what you are, and that's why you give me the big money, and that is to explain what it is. See, Genesis 4 is exceedingly terse. I mean, it is so short and it does not make sense. And you have to battle through and figure out the themes. Let's go quickly and solve one thing real fast. Let's go to Matthew 23.35. This is Jesus Christ talking about Cain and Abel. And he says something that makes you a dispensationalist because you believe Jesus Christ you want to be just like him, I hope, and follow in at least his theology, and at least have the theology of Jesus, and he has a dispensationalist view, I hope. Matthew 23:35. that would be page 1620 for those of you who have this holy Bible that I do that. On you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth from the blood of the righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, who you murdered between the temple and altar. Assuredly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. There is Jesus Christ mentioning the name of who? Abel. What does he call him? Righteous. He mentions his name as if he were a what? A real person. Jesus Christ automatically takes a position. This is not an allegorical story. Cain lived. Abel lived. They are real people. And who is he saying will be the blood on you? The blood. Who is he talking to? He's talking to the Pharisees. And he says, the righteous blood of Abel will be on you. You who have killed the righteous. Abel is a what in this story? He is a prophet in this story. Zechariah is a prophet in this story, and they have been killed by who? The ruling class, the religious class of Israel. Yay, water. I'll be smart this week. Now I can spit on the front row with authority. Abel is an innocent blood, and he was killed by what group, according to Christ? He was killed by the Pharisees. Huh? Abel. Abel. But that on you, who's you? Talking to the Pharisees. On you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth. In other words, every righteous person that has been killed on the earth that blood is going to be on you from Abel to Zechariah. That's what Christ says to the Pharisees. So they're sitting there listening to him, and he's saying, okay, Pharisees, 
on your hands the blood of these righteous men will fall on you. So one, he calls Abel a righteous man. And two, he says he's a real guy. And three, he says his blood will be on you. You are guilty of what? Killing him. If you, Pharisees, have killed Abel, Abel therefore becomes... Who, who else does the Pharisees kill? They kill Christ, don't they? They kill Jesus. So if Abel is killed by the Pharisees and Jesus is killed by the Pharisees, then Abel is clearly a type of Jesus, isn't it? That is a dispensationalist view, by the way, coming into play. And if Abel is a type of Jesus and the Pharisees killed Jesus, then who killed Abel? Cain. So therefore, the Pharisees must be a type of who? Cain. And that is the dispensationalist view. Cain equals Pharisee. Abel equals Jesus. That's what he's saying in 2335. Now, how does that make sense? Where is that? Most people look at the Cain and Abel story and they say this is an unfair story. All Abel did was bring a different kind of offering. God didn't like his offering. It's perfectly good offering. He cared about it. Was he acknowledging God when he brought this offering? He was indeed, wasn't he? He was saying God exists. I'm going to bring an offering to God. God exists. Is he worshiping God? Well, he is, isn't he? It's an offering of worship. So what's the problem? Why do we end up with a murder over something like this? And why does he murder his brother? It doesn't make any sense if you read it as that. But you have to go running around a little bit trying to figure out what's going on. See, one is a sheep guy, isn't he? And the other is a farmer or a killer of ground. When you read that, shouldn't Cain come first? Read that. Now, Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a killer of ground. Who was born first? Cain. Shouldn't Cain come first? Shouldn't it say Cain was a killer of the ground and Abel was a keeper of sheep? It's already flipped. Is that an irrelevant detail that doesn't have any significance? I don't think so. I think there is significance to that. Now, let's keep going here. And in the process of time, how many of you have... At the end of days. Anyone have a translation that says, at the end of days. That is the exact Hebrew. At the end of days. At the end of days should be there. So write in your little side light if you have, you know, margins that are big enough. Write at the end of days and then put next to that. That's the Hebrew. At the end of days lets you know that there is an appointed time, isn't there, for this. There's an appointed... We, at the end of the days, whatever those days mean, we have something that happens. And at the end of days, Cain brought an offering. And Abel brought an offering. So at the end of days, we have an offering. So, how long was that? How many days went by before we had this sacrifice and this offering? It is clearly an appointed time. We have a specific time offering, don't we? How long? Last week I made, the, I made a comment. I said that these guys, if Abel is a type of Christ and he was killed by Cain, then he had to be killed by Cain at age 33 because if Cain represented the Pharisees, the Pharisees killed Christ at age 33. <laughs> So these men are in their 30s, is the comment that I made last week. If they are in their 30s, then how many offerings have we had up to this point? If they are 33, for example, both of them, they would each be 33. How many offerings have we had up to this point? We have had 32 offerings. We have had 32 offerings and no mention of any problem. So for 32 times each, both of these men brought their offerings to, to the Lord at the end of days, at a specific place, and everything was fine. Now we have a change. And that is what this theme is. The theme of Cain and Abel. The theme is 
God must be worshipped. Whoops, I just fell. You hear Alan battling up here every week telling you that you're supposed to worship God. It's very important to you as a Christian. It is very important to you as a Christian. Here we have the very first story past Adam and Eve is the thing of worship. We must at a specific time worship God. That's what we must do. Are both of these guys doing it? Both of these guys are worshiping God at a specific time. Now, where are they doing it? That becomes the next question. Is there a specific place? Yes, as we discussed last week, we know that when they were kicked out of the garden, that God put a flaming sword by the gate. And two cherubim following or standing beside that sword. And almost every theologian believes, believe, the majority of you is overwhelming, that this is where Cain and Abel came back once a year for this offering. So we had an appointed time and appointed place. Now, if we have an appointed time and an appointed place, then there must be a clue, as we just demonstrated, in the Genesis 3. Don't forget that these two hide together. The reason that I know that this has got to be the case, the reason that I know that they came back to this gate where the flaming sword is, is because if I look at Genesis 3, what does Genesis 3 end with? Genesis 3 ends with the flaming sword, doesn't it? Now, the very first place I'm asked about, or that's discussed in Genesis 4, is it doesn't give us any, any indication. It just says that they're going to come and give an offering. Well, they don't have to because, you see, Genesis 3 tells you that the last place we've discussed is that gate with the flaming sword and the cherubim. So it follows naturally that that is where they're coming. Keep that logic always in your mind when you read Cain and Abel. It always refers back to Genesis 3. If you put a list down here and you said what place was discussed in Genesis 3, you would say Eden. What's the last place discussed in Genesis 3? You would say the flaming sword. Okay, that's what you would do. Now you're in Abel. We've got a place. It's the place where the altar is. Where is it? Is it here? Can't be. They got kicked out of there. Where's the only other place it could be? The place where the flaming sword is. The two stories lay on top of each other and follow an order. And you've got to constantly go back for it to make any sense. So, how do I know that it's a place? Because of this. At the end of days, a specific time, that Cain brought an offering. He brought an offering. Where did he bring it to? He brought it to a specific place. Where did he bring it from? Someplace else. He brought his offering somewhere. He makes a trip to go somewhere. Does that still happen today, by the way? Yes, it does. We still have the Jewish festivals. They are still doing this. Is it likely that God would continue this pattern throughout history? Yeah. That's what he would do. That's what he does do. Okay. God is to be worshipped. We have a time. We have a place. We know where and we know when. We know it's at the end of the days. We know it's at the flaming sword. Why? Would you think that we have questions as to why we have to worship? Do we have questions as to how? And is that our questions that we ask of the newspaper reporters? When, why, where, how, who, right? We got the who they care Really quickly, how many people are alive? Four? How old are they? Okay. We got four people, we think. Adam is how old? Boy, we don't know that, do we? Okay, we've got Cain and Abel. We're, you've gone down my path. You said you're in the 30s. Anyway, I'll do a little math for you. i got two people. Okay? And out of those two people, 
We have at least two sons. No. Cups up one. Now, let's assume that if they're in their thirties, drop this down so you can do math. Let's assume that if they're in their thirties, that uh, there might be some other children out there. A possibility? Look at your own family. You got any 30-year differences between you and your brother? If you do, keep it to yourself. Okay? Some parents are, you know, that takes medical science. But it doesn't say he has another family. It does, it doesn't. But, but it does say, if you keep going in there, it does say they had many children. Now you have to figure out when that happened. So I'm going to speculate for you. That's what I like to do. I'm going to say that we have a family over here. I'm going to say right now that I have 20, uh, 30 years and I keep having the twins every time. I got at least 60, 62 people, don't I? And if I got, if I have twins every year, now, I'm not saying they did, but I'm carrying it to the, to the furthest. I've got maybe 70 people sitting there. How many girls? Half? Let's just say I have one child every year. The first two twins is just in the mom off. But after that, I've just had one child every year for 30 years. I've got at least 34 people sitting here. How many girls? 17? 16 girls? Now, let's say I have two families, and each family has a minimum of six kids. See, here comes math. Isn't math wonderful? Okay, one, two, three, four, five, six, and each one of those is going to have six kids. Okay, and it just keeps going, right? And it's going over here, too, isn't it? Six. And they end up in math. It's called factorials. How many put factorials in our school? Okay. Four factorial is one times two times three times four. So that would be nine times four, which would be six. And four factorial in the math class. Now, we have exponents. Okay? Six squared is 36, right? That's six times six. See, the first, if each kid has six kids, and each one of those kids had six kids. First thing I do is I add these six to that six. Okay? Go ahead. And pretty soon, I'm adding these six to that six to this six to that six to this six. So my first row is six squared. My second row is six cubed. My third row is six to the four. By the time I get to seven generations or 80 years, I'm six to the seventh power which all of you know is 560 years, I had on the last year of that, I got almost 300, 250,000 people. Then I got to add them all the way to those other people. So after after 500 years of existence, how many people were on the earth? Almost 500,000 people. You know what the math tells you? 1,656 years. 1656 years, I know this is boring, but I gotta get out of your way. 1656 years is the amount of time from the creation to the flood, according to a theologian named Usher. He is the man that did all that math. He did all the begats and counted all the people and figured out how many years there were. And he said, if you take the Bible's chronology, there's 1656 years. If you do the math, you know how many people were alive at the time of the flood if everybody had six children? You know how many people, and no death rate, by the way, you know how many the average size family was in 1910? Average size family, that's before birth control, right? 1910. 
average number of children per family was 13. And that was the size of the families in 1910. So if I take half of it, I take six. I just say all they have is six. And that means that I got a 50% death rate. And would I have that, by the way? Would I have the disease I've got now? Probably not. That was, you know, we're only 1,500 years away from a perfect world. We still have a vapor canopy. If I take six kids in 1,656 years, you know how many people are on the earth at the time of the flood? Seven billion people. You do the math. Seven billion. I've got the math for you. If you'd ever like to look at it. If you're that much in demand. It does. It does. It does go on. You have to keep reading that story. You're going to find out. Just that When it mentions Adam's death, it talks about all the other children that he had. So we have to say, when did that occur? Did that all... Did all we do is... See, the Bible is really amazingly terse. The writer of it says just what he wants you to understand. What's he trying to get you to understand? He's trying to get you to understand that there is something going on in Cain and Abel that discusses those themes of Adam and Eve. So he's trying to get you to figure that out. Now let's go back to the story real quickly. Cain brought a gratitude offering. In the Hebrew, it's called a minchah. I know some of this is repeat. He brought a minchah. Okay, there it is. What does that word mean in the Hebrew? That means that he is honoring God for God's blessing, and he is acknowledging God as a provider of that blessing, and he is grateful to God for that. That is what minchah means. So when it says that Cain brings an offering, it says he is grateful to God for providing for him, and that he is acknowledging God as a dispenser of all of that. Isn't that what you do? It's your grace every day. It's what you do. What is wrong with that? Why is that a bad thing? Why did God reject that offering? Why did he do that? See, up to here, everybody's the same. Cain has the same offering for 32 years that Abel had. Who else is offering at this time? Adam and Eve are offering at this time. Aren't they? And if they have kids, all their kids are offering at this time. So I have Adam as even with Cain, as even with Abel, as even with... Eve is even with any other kids that happen to be there. Everybody's offering over the last 30 years has always been the same. Now we have a change. That's what this story is about. Why this change? What happened here? Why did this change occur? You see, if you read Hebrews 11, it says, By faith, Abel brought a more excellent sacrifice. His sacrifice was better than Cain's. Was Abel better than Cain? No. Abel and Cain are the same. They're the same guy. What's the difference? The difference is in the sacrifices, in the offering. Hebrews says that Abel's was a better sacrifice. So now you've got to evaluate what's the difference in the two sacrifices? What's the difference? One brought a gratitude offering. What did the other one bring? He brought blood, didn't he? One brought fruit and grains. The other brought blood. I go back to the first story, Adam and Eve. You knew one, two, three were not going to come into play. Four, five, and six, what were they? Big leaves, curses, coverings. Here I had fig leaves. And God took the fig leaves off and he put on, he killed two animals and he put on blood and skin, didn't he? He took this off and he put on blood. Now every year for the last 32 years we have gone over that issue. That is exactly what this sacrifice is about. 
32 years we have gone back over this blood covering. Adam and Eve had the fig leaves on. God took the fig leaves off and put the blood on. And for 32 years we have had a ceremony that has discussed that event. Why is that event so significant that Cain and Abel would be brought up in this story? Why did Cain, knowing that God made that change from fig leaves to blood, why did he change back to fig leaves? Because that's what he did, didn't he? He brought fruit. and bring any blood. God said, look, Adam and Eve, yes, you need to be covered. Your nakedness needs to be covered. I've got to take your nakedness and cover it. But fig leaves can't work. It won't work. Why won't it work? Because there's no blood in it. We must have blood to cover sin. So we've got to kill something. We have to kill something innocent. You see, that's the whole point. I've got to have an innocent substitute for Adam and Eve's sin. And so it's got to have blood. It's got to be innocent. Got to have blood. Cain and Abel have done that for 32 years. All of a sudden now, Cain says, No, I don't need blood. I don't need to go back to Genesis 3 and look at what God did. See, did Adam and Eve participate in the covering of their sin? No. God made sure that He did it alone. Read it. Adam didn't hunt the animal down. Adam didn't skin the animal. Adam didn't select the animal. Adam was not involved at all. God did it all. By himself alone. But Adam and Eve did the fig leaves. He stripped off and threw away. And covered them with the skin of these animals. Blood. Very, very important. That's the thing that we're dealing with in Cain and Abel. Now, for some reason, 32 years later, Cain makes a change. Why do you do that? Why do you make a change? What's he thinking? And he makes a change that angers himself, ultimately, to the point where he kills his brother. This change is so significant that it causes him to kill his brother. What could be that? What's, what's happening? Why, after 32 years, does he do this? What's he thinking? And see, God looks at those two offerings, doesn't he? There's this gratitude offering. There's the sin off. God sends fire down, as we discussed last week, consumes and accepts the blood offering of Abel. Cain's, nothing happens, leaves it on the ground. And Cain gets mad. Why did he get mad? Shouldn't get mad. He should just say, well, God, I'm sorry. I thought this fruit was good enough. Obviously, it's not good enough. What do you want me to do? Isn't that what he should have said? Yeah, I blew it. I thought this was okay. It's not okay. I will go get a sin offering. Notice, he will go get a sin offering. See, if you get back up in the 47, we'll get into it next week. This is an extremely complex story. Today you got the introduction. We'll start digging into it next week. But in 4-7 is the first mention of a word. That word is... Sin. The first time this mention is in 4-7. You need to know every time there's something first time mentioned. The other first mention in here is when Cain is die, dies, he says, The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me. I have the first mention in this story of the word sin and the first mention in this story of the word blood. Both times again. First story with both of those words are mentioned for the first time in Scripture. That is not insignificant. This is a story about sin and about blood and the consequences of both. You see, you can't bring that fruit, grain, fig leaf offering to God if you have no sin. If you are sinless, that gratitude offering is perfectly acceptable. God will take it. But if you have sin, it isn't going to work. You ought to have blood. So what is King saying? He's saying, I don't have any sin. I can come up here after 32 years of doing a sin offering where I've admitted I've had sin. I can come to you, God, and say, 
No, I'm sinless. I have no sin. Does he have sin? Yes, he does. Where did he get it from? From his parents. He was born of his parents. And he had their sin nature. He's denying that. After 32 years, he's looked at his life and he said, I have no sin. How much sin does he have compared to you? See, look at Abel. Okay? That's the third human being, isn't it? Of, of the first two perfect people. How much sin does he have compared to you? Minuscule compared to you is right. If you evaluated his life and looked at your life, you would be horrified. Would he go to front of God and said, I had no sin? And we would look at him and say, if anybody could do it, this guy could do it. What did God do? You have sin. You have sin inherited from your parents. In order for you not to have sin, you could not. You had to be born from somebody else who didn't have sin. The only way you cannot have sin in your life is to be what? Born again. See that theme in the New Testament? Whenever you see born again in the New Testament, you are talking about Cain and Abel. Every time you see born again, if you're Nicodemus, go back to Cain and Abel. We will finish this story next week. No. We will start this story next week. Okay. Thanks for coming. Send them on, big Al.